This is Canvas, a show all about iPad productivity. My name is Fraser Spears and I'm running the show solo tonight because Federico is out on assignment. Digital well-being is a new phrase that we're using these days for the idea that we might sometimes need a little help in managing our use of digital devices. Quite often, I think we always feel that other people need help in using their digital devices, but our use of digital devices is, of course, essential, absolutely necessary for our work and completely legitimate. It's one of these tricky situations in our modern world where everybody feels that somebody else is doing it wrong, but they're doing—they're the one doing it right, and they're doing uh, elevating and important things, whereas everybody else is just wasting their time. However, iOS has long provided a range of options for restricting the different functions of an iOS device and restricting the user's ability to change things as well. So it's not just about restricting the use, but also restricting the ability to reconfigure and change settings and change levels and controls and things like that. We're going to take a look at these settings tonight and as well as some deeper options and third-party tools for managing device time, particularly for children. People often think that iOS doesn't really support this, but it does have a rather extensive range of features. Other platforms make a bigger play of this, and perhaps the the biggest platform that makes a play for this is the Amazon Kindle Fire ecosystem, where they really play front and center with uh, parental controls for children. So they have things like uh, screen time limitation, but they also have category-based limitation. And this is something that iOS doesn't have, but I think would be a really useful addition. On the Kindle platform, what you can do is you can say, well, there's unlimited book reading in the Kindle app, but you only get 30 minutes a day of games. That's an idea that's sometimes called time budgeting, and that's not something that iOS has. iOS lets you restrict what you do, but it, it can't account for time in the same way that, for example, Kindle Fire ecosystem can. So that's just something to say up front that that's a, a, it's not a feature we're going to be talking about tonight because at least at the time of recording this, which is in the iOS 11 era, just before WWDC, that feature doesn't exist on iOS. But iOS does have a whole set of on-device parental controls that you can set up with essentially no additional technology. You can just go into the, the section of settings and turn them on and control that individual device that way. That's fine when you're doing one or two, but you may need more comprehensive settings control if you're, say, deploying a set for a school. And that's something that I do in my daily job, and that's uh, that's a whole other show. In fact, it's a whole other podcast, but if you're interested in knowing about mass configuration of iOS devices, you might want to look at my show, the show that I used to do with my pal Bradley Chambers called Out of School, where we talked quite extensively about the ways that we use iOS devices in the schools that we both work in. If you're setting up one iOS device for one young person or maybe a couple, you can use the settings that live in settings, general and restrictions. And you can go in there and you can control a lot of things about an iOS device. But before you can explore them, you have to enable them. And restrictions are secured and enabled with a four digit pin code. Now, this is a different pin code to the unlock pin for the device itself. It's a four digit pin. It doesn't support six digits or a password the way that the unlocking of the iOS device does. But you should have this obviously different to the one that you use to unlock the device. One of the important things about the iOS restrictions settings in the settings app is that they're they're really for serious. They're they're not just um, they're not just toy restrictions. If you set this up and if you forget your pin code, there is no way to reset that without a full and fresh restore of the device. So it's going to be critical for you to remember the pin code that you set on your kid's iPad or iPhone. 
Now, one of the other reasons that you might want to go into this, even if you don't actually want to restrict anything on your child's device, is that you might want to just prevent them from turning it on for themselves. Some schools where they don't manage this setting at all have found that it's a hilarious game that some children like to play where they go in and they turn on a bunch of settings uh, or they restrict a bunch of settings and then they forget the pin code that they set in the first place. So one of the reasons to turn on restrictions, even if you don't disable anything, is to stop your young person from setting it themselves and then forgetting the pin and you've got to then go and do a, a systems administrator job to try and get the device back up and running. So we'll just consider that as an option just to just turn it on anyway so that you're you're in control of that panel and not the, the user of the device. So what can you do with built-in parental controls? Well, you can do a number of different things and they're kind of broken up into sections if you like. And the, the first section in the the restrictions is what you might call general features. And basically what this is, these are high-level iOS features that you can basically turn off and make it so they don't exist. Uh, and those are, first of all, Safari, the camera, Siri and dictation, that's the dictation button on the keyboard, FaceTime as an idea, AirDrop and CarPlay. Not notably missing from that is iMessage, actually. That's something that isn't actually possible to restrict just through these settings. You have to be at a different level of control in order to turn off iMessage. But in the case of apps like Safari and FaceTime, they sim the icon simply disappears from the home screen and those those features don't exist on the device anymore. Now the camera app does similarly, it just disappears, but more than that, as you, as you know from many different applications on iOS, you can apps can use the camera without using the camera application itself. So what happens there at a programming level is that the, the application asks the iOS device, first of all, do you have a camera? Because remember, there was a time when some did not. And then the OS will say, yes, I've got a camera, and it will give some information about what kinds of camera it has. But what happens there is that the, the APIs, the system will actually lie to apps and say, oh, this device doesn't have a camera when in fact it does. Uh, and apps have to, of course, account for the possibility that an iOS device might not have a camera. So it should disable or prevent those features from being used. So the, the camera app control is pretty comprehensive. It's not just that it hides the app, although it does, but it also starts to tell lies to applications and says, no, no, I don't have any camera here. And the app will then have to deal with that. So it prevents both the camera use, but also use of the camera inside other apps as well. The next kind of section in, in restrictions is that you can restrict Apple's sort of built-in commercial storefronts, if you like. You can disable the iTunes store and the iBook store entirely. The App Store is a little more complex because the App Store is kind of at the heart of iOS and it also handles things like app offloading and reinstallation and things like that. And if you if you hide a built-in application, you need to have the App Store there to get it back and so on. So you can't completely disable the App Store. But what you can do is you can prevent the user from installing any new apps. And you can also prevent any in-app purchases, both, well, primarily that happens inside individual applications. So any app that tries to make an in-app purchase, it will be denied by the system. Now, if you have young children who you let use your devices or if they even have their own device, uh, one of the things you can also do here is you can prevent deletion of applications. And this is something that we use in our school for uh, five, six and seven year olds who use uh, iOS devices. And it's quite common for young people that young to accidentally delete apps and things like that. So, and that can be frustrating for a teacher. So what we that's a setting that we turn on in our, our mass management system, but you can set it on for your individual apps as well. 
And in particular, even for your own device, never mind a device that's dedicated for a young person, on your own iPhone, say you, you know, I couldn't possibly confess to this in my own family, but I know that some people might let very young children play with iPhones at, say, a dinner table. And one of the things you might want to consider turning on there is uh, preventing people from deleting apps because, for example, if you have important data in an app and your two- or three-year-old that's trying to watch YouTube or whatever accidentally deletes an app from your phone, some of that data could be lost, and that's, that's a possibility too. So you might want to even turn that on on your own device just to defend against uh, young users of your devices maybe making a mistake with what they do there. Now, there's, the next section is all about content controls. So when we're, we're dealing with content controls, what we're doing is we're talking about uh, not actually blocking the iBook store or the iTunes store, but controlling the kinds of content that are accessible through those stores. This is also true for music as well. Music and also the Apple News application uh, have explicit tags on, we, we know about explicit tags in music for many, many years. And all, this is also true of podcasts, I believe. Uh, but news items also have this and you can block those those kinds of content through those applications. Uh, books can be tagged as explicit and you can block the, uh, the purchase or download or, or opening of those books that are so tagged as well. All iOS apps actually have an age rating too. And if you're an adult user of the iOS store, you probably don't really pay much attention to the rating of apps. But when a developer creates an app and, and Apple gives guidelines for what constitutes a, a an app for a, a 4 plus rating, for example, versus a 17 plus rating and so on. Uh, one of the things that you can do here is you can actually say, well, I only want this device to have uh, apps that are rated 4 plus and, and below. There is no below, but that's the lowest level. Or you could say allow all apps, and that's the default. Uh, but there are different levels of, uh, you know, levels of, you know, threat, violence, uh, vice, if you like, and things like that. And what you can do with that is you can say, well, I only want to allow apps to a certain level. So if you have like a nine or 10 year old who's access, maybe is accessing the app store on their own account, you can still say, well, you're not allowed to download a 17 plus application, which might be a game that involves, you know, quite explicit acts of violence or something like that. So you, you can do that. Um, and if, if you have apps like that that are already installed, when you turn this on, those apps will be hidden from the device as well. Although for the last time I checked that, I don't believe they will be disabled or deleted. They'll just be hidden from the home screen. So if you change that setting later on, the apps will return and, and they'll be as they were before you turned the setting on. You can also do a little bit of control with Siri as well. So you can, uh, there are ways, uh, believe it or not, to make Siri say swear words. And you can also, you can prevent this as a sort of filtering feature. Um, and you can also prevent Siri from going out to the web to answer questions. So if, if you ask Siri a certain question, sometimes the results you'll get back will come from the open web. And if you don't want that to happen, there's a setting there you can turn that off too. People mostly don't know about this, but there is actually a basic content filter built into iOS Safari as well, where you there are two ways it works. It works in two different modes. The first mode is a kind of uh, almost like a spam filter approach where it tries to sort of analyze what is coming into Safari and tries to block it out if it's considered adult. There, now, there are no controls over this. This is a feature that has been in iOS for quite some time, but... It has not really been updated or, or enhanced in any way in, in several versions. But what it does is you turn it on and Safari will make its own judgment about whether or not the thing that you're looking at is adult. 
Now, the last thing I the last time I tried to use this, I found it to be extremely uh, extremely conservative in in its decision making, and it tended to blacklist things that you wouldn't really think of as being an adult website, like certain newspapers, for example, and things like that. And I'm not talking about newspapers that might have nudity in them. I'm just talking about like the Guardian, for example. Uh, that was one of my uh, test sites, and and Safari blocked that with no explanation and with no no way of controlling what it does and what it doesn't do. But if you really want tight restrictions on the web, the other thing you can do with this uh, content filter is you can actually force Safari to only allow whitelisted websites. So you can give a set of URLs that you allow and everything else will be blocked. This is probably pretty good for younger users where you might want to allow one or two particular websites, but you know not uh, arbitrary access to the web, for example. So that's the content controls. It's actually a little bit more, uh, a little deeper, a little more complex than you might think it is. Uh, but the that Safari content filter, nice idea, but not very controllable uh, and a little unpredictable in in its decision making. Now the next thing you can do is you can control privacy. Now we know a lot about uh, iOS's privacy stance, if you like, but also the fact that all the way through iOS, whenever an app wants to access some privacy-related feature, you will be prompted to allow or deny access to it. So things like location services, contacts, calendars, reminders, photos, location, microphone, speech recognition, all of these things, are these are all prompts that you will be given as you kind of work through iOS and use different apps. But what you can do in the privacy section of restrictions is you can actually prevent the device user from changing those settings under all those different headings that I just mentioned. So what you're doing, if you enable that restriction, what you're doing is you're disallowing a change. You're not setting them all to be off. So when you go into this section, go into the restrictions and go into, yeah, let's say, location services privacy, you'll see the top two items say uh, allow changes and don't allow changes. And then down below that, there's a list with switches of all the apps that the user has previously given permission to access location services, for example. And what you can do is you can flick those on or off there. So you basically allow or disallow those prompts again. And then once you exit the restrictions, those apps will be either permanently allowed or permanently denied. And any new apps that come onto the device will not even be allowed to ask for permission. So you, you can... You can set it the way you want it because think about it. In some cases, if you're a parent, you might want certain apps to have access to location services. Let's say you might want Find My Friends to be on because you might use that as part of your uh, kind of monitoring of, of children, for example. If, you, if your children are out and about, you might want to make it so that A, uh, it's always on so that you can see where they are and B, you may want it so they can't turn it off as well. And that's a, that's a whole other story. So all of those settings are there. Uh, if an app has been authorized, it remains authorized, and you can't authorize new apps in the future, which is uh, this is a pretty tight set of controls, and you can you can combine them in all different ways depending on what it is you want to do. But those are some of the privacy restrictions that you can do inside iOS settings. Now there are other options as well. Uh, you can prevent changes to various other settings, such as accounts. This is the, the changing settings to accounts is quite important because uh, sometimes the, back in the early days of large one-to-one -one iPad deployments in secondary schools, there was a problem where if students were coming along with their own Apple IDs, personal Apple IDs they were using on other devices, 
what was going on was that uh, kids would, on a friend's device, they would sign into their Apple ID, download the games that they had paid for onto their friend's device, and then sign out again. And, and basically, it was becoming like a vector for piracy, where uh, kids would sign in, download some apps, sign out, and that wouldn't disable those apps. It just meant that they weren't... Um, they weren't on the same Apple ID as the rest of the, of the device, uh, so that was that was limited now. And there is a thing in the App Store where uh, if you sign into a device and do something that looks like it could be piracy, basically download prepaid content. So if you download a movie that's already been paid for in that account, or download an app that's already been paid for in that account, what will happen is that iOS device will be locked to that Apple ID for ninety days. And Apple will generally not let you out of this. And, and uh, I've run into this in school situations in, uh, a few years ago, but not so much anymore. But that's one of the reasons why you might want to prevent changes to accounts is because it prevents uh, other people from signing into the Apple ID on this device and, and vice versa. So you've got accounts. You also get mobile data, which might be a, a money-saving thing that you want to control. Uh, and another one is volume limit as well. So you can prevent changes to the, the built-in iOS volume limit. And finally, because Apple runs it, you can control Game Center as well. Uh, you can prevent the user from playing multiplayer games that, through Game Center or adding friends through Game Center. But note that's only through Game Center, not through any game on the system. And of course, many games have got different uh, multiplayer systems that don't involve Game Center at all. So that's not um, that's not very comprehensive, but it is a kind of uh, uh, is a kind of. Uh, Bill and Bracey's thing if you, if you want to be able to do that. That's quite a kind of comprehensive overview of the list of things you can control by default on iOS. And my view, the, the way I've kind of handled that myself, is that these are the kind of things that, you know, if you're a parent, you want to know that you can control them, even if you choose not to. So I don't think it's a great idea to kind of assume the worst about your child, unless you maybe already know the worst is true, that might be possible. But in general, you know, be aware that you can control these things. And if you are having a problem with somebody using the camera inappropriately, let's say, well, you can just enable restrictions and you can disable the camera and keep using the rest of the device. Those things are, are perfectly sensible to do. Now, of course, I, I'm couching most of this episode in terms of you, you're a parent and you're trying to set up a device for a young person. There are plenty of other scenarios where iOS is used where you might that assumption might not hold true. So for example, if you're setting up a public kiosk and you are going to leave an iOS device there for people to use, you will want to use a lot more of those settings to prevent any kind of shenanigans by the public in terms of what they want to do with your device. So with that, let me take a break and tell you about one of our sponsors for this show, and that is our friends at Pingdom. Pingdom is the company who offer uptime monitoring and web performance management. You're more familiar with Pingdom than you might think because Pingdom are helping to keep your favorite sites online. Evernote, BuzzFeed, Netflix, Imager, if you've used any of those sites recently and not run into any, any trouble, you may have Pingdom to thank for that. Websites are pretty sophisticated now and have so many different moving parts. You've got to get contact forms working, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and loads more. Pingdom let you check the availability of all these functions. It's not just about getting a message when your entire site goes down. They care about the important interactions people have on your site too, and they'll let you know if they're not working. 
so easy to get started. All Pingdom needs is the URL you want to monitor and they take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And then when you sign up, use the code CANVAS at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and all of RelayFM. Okay, so now I want to talk about a different feature in iOS that is extremely powerful for controlling what a user does on the device. In fact, it's so powerful, it's pretty intrusive, but there might be certain situations where you could find some good use for this feature. Uh, And this feature is called Guided Access. Now, it's something that people don't really even know is there because Apple builds it in and sort of markets it and talks about it in the context of accessibility. And and in principle, guided access is designed for people maybe with learning difficulties or motor control problems to be able to use an iOS device inside one app without you know accidentally or deliberately moving into other apps. Now this can be used for, for children who have autism, for example. You know, sometimes they, they need a little bit of help to focus on one particular thing. Uh, people who have you know very gross motor control difficulties, they can sometimes accidentally, you know, if you accidentally swipe the screen and that can, you know, you accidentally do the four finger gesture that moves them into another app. People who uh, maybe have learning difficulties and don't understand quite how to work the whole interface, but a, an assistant can put it into one app for them and turn on gated access, and they can maybe use this one app. Um, I've also seen this used for people, um, there are some people who have like environmental control systems, people who are very disabled, and um, they maybe have like the blinds in their house and, and the taps and things are all on a control system, and they, they use an iOS app to control these things. But it would be very difficult for them to kind of get it back if, if that app ever you know disappeared or something. Uh, so gated access can kind of keep you very tightly locked into one app. Another way I, I use it more often uh, than for those reasons is uh, in our school we have a, a one-to-one iPad program, and we also use gated access extensively when it comes to exams. So when the final exams are on at the end of the year, as they are now, we will set up iPads, and not obviously the, the student's own iPad because that's got their data on it, but a, a, a fresh iPad, a blank iPad, and we'll set up whatever app we require. Now that typically tends to be either Microsoft Word or PDF Expert, depending on the exam paper. And what we'll do is we will set up the iPad the way we want it in terms of the uh, the system-wide spell checker being turned on or off, the predictive keyboard and so on. But then what we want is we want the student to stay inside the one document that we open for them. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll turn on gated access, we'll disable certain features, but we'll also uh, disable the back button on the screen. And I'll talk in a little second about how you do that. But what that means is that the student can work inside one document in Word, for example, but they can't back out of that document and go into another document. Not that there are any on the device, but let's just say for the sake of argument that it was possible for them to get to uh, the internet, which is not, but let's say they could. They wouldn't actually be able to get out of the Word in order to join another network, in order to get on the internet to download some kind of file. So that's one of the features that we use to help us with that. And it's pretty secure. We haven't... uh, Uh, I haven't found an easy way around it in general. Now, gaining access provides really three basic capabilities, and and the one I've mentioned already is locking the user into one app. 
when you turn on guided access, what you visually see is you see the iOS screen sort of shrink down a little bit and some additional controls come around the an image of the whole screen. And what you can then do in that mode is you can you can actually draw with your finger. You can draw either a little square or a little circle, and you can make an arbitrary sort of shape on the screen where you can draw around the controls that you want to be turned off, and, and iOS will turn that into a little, a little mask that goes over that area of the screen. And it only works in that area of the screen, so if, you, know, you can have all the toolbars available, but you can draw a little square around the back button so that the user can't close the document, for example, in the, in the case of an exam, for example. Uh, so what you can do with that is you, you can turn on uh, gated access, turn off certain areas of the screen, and you can also do things like prevent use of the sleep and wake buttons or the volume buttons or, or device rotation. So this is quite helpful also if you're making a kiosk. So to prevent the user from going out of your application and into uh, the settings and playing about with the settings when nobody's supervising the use of the device, what you want to do is turn on gated access and then the user is stuck in whatever kiosk app that you've made. So it's something to be really aware of if you're doing a, a, a live iOS installation for public use. You really need to get familiar with gated access in order to uh, keep those devices running without people interfering with them in strange ways. So in order to turn it on, you have to go into settings, general, and then accessibility, not restrictions, and then scroll down to gated access at the bottom. So once you turn on gated access, you have to set a pin code uh, that can be used to disable gated access, but you can also use touch ID or face ID to end gated access. So you, you could have it so that you can disable it, but the person that's using the device can't. When you turn it on, as I said, you can draw around these areas of the screen that you don't want the users to have access to, but another thing you could do in gated access, and this is sometimes useful in, in test situations in schools, but we tend not to use it, is you can set a time limit for the session. So when the time runs out, it's not that gated access turns off when the time is out, but gated access will prevent any further use. And basically what you have to do at that point is you, you're then required to put in the gated access pin code in order to get back to the app that you were using. Now, gated access is very hard to get past, which is why we can depend on it in an exam situation. There is a single way to disable it, however, and that is to go to iCloud.com and put your device into an out of lost mode and that will disable guided access. Now, in, in our exam scenario, those iPads that we are using, they don't have an iCloud, an Apple ID assigned to them, so that wouldn't work for us. We would have to do it through a device management server, but that's for on, on a personal device, that's how you would do it, is you, you would put it into loss mode and then take it out of loss mode and guided access will be disabled at that point. Now, I want to talk about one other feature uh, that is possible for iOS devices. And uh, I kind of hesitate to talk about this capability because it can be quite tricky to use correctly. Uh, and, you know, with great power comes great responsibility and all that stuff. But there is a thing called iOS supervision, which allows for even deeper control of an iOS device. And this is starting to get into semi-enterprise territory. So it may not be the kind of thing that you want to do at home, but again, be aware of it because, you know, you might find yourself in a situation where you need really deep control of an iOS device, and this is how you get it. So iOS supervision is basically a sort of special state that you can put a device into, and that lets you put restrictions on that device that go beyond even what's possible with the settings app and guided access. In order to supervise a device, 
outside of an enterprise situation, you have to use a tool called Apple Configurator on a Mac. Now, Apple Configurator is an Apple application and it's a free download from the App Store. Uh, now, I know some podcasts will blow a spoiler horn when they're talking about movies. What I feel like I need here is like a total data loss flugelhorn or something like that because Apple Configurator can destroy your device. I don't mean permanently brick it, but what it will do is if you want to supervise a device, you have to erase the device completely and you cannot restore from any previous backup before you supervise it. So this is the kind of thing that a business or a school would do when devices are coming out of the box brand new. And you know, if a user brought a device in and says, okay, I want this device supervised, the consequences of that are that device is getting wiped and you have to set it up from scratch again. But if, if all of that is okay with you, then what you need to do is you connect your device to a Mac over a USB cable. It will show up in Apple Configurator. Apple Configurator, you can sort of think about it like it's like a, a nerd version of iTunes. You know, So a lot of things you can do with a device in iTunes, like restore it and so on. You can do all this in Apple Configurator as well. The device will show up in Apple Configurator. And what you can do is you, you hit a button called prepare or there's a menu option called prepare. And you go through a number of windows, but one of the options you have in there is to supervise the device. And once you supervise the device, the way you know it's supervised is if you go into settings and look at the sidebar where uh, all the options for the settings are, if you go to the top, an extra little text panel will appear that says this device is supervised by, and it will give the name of the organization that supervised it. And it gives you a little explanation and a learn more link for knowing, learning more about supervision. Once you've done that and set the device up from scratch again, then what you can do is use that instance of Apple Configurator to put what are called configuration profiles on the device. Now, talking about configuration profiles again is, is a podcast in itself, but essentially what a configuration profile is, is it's a file that contains sets of settings that you can install on the device with one click. So you can do things like pre-configure uh, a Wi-Fi network, for example. So we do this in school, where we have a we have a Wi-Fi network with a password for the students, and when we configure new iOS devices, we connect them to Apple Configurator and we prepare them. And Configurator will automatically install a profile that provides access to that Wi-Fi network. I don't have to type in the long and complicated Wi-Fi network password to every device I set up, because Configurator firstly supervises the device and then manages it for me by putting that profile on automatically. You can do lots of other things. You can you can set up a Google account in there. You can you can use that to turn off iMessage. You can set up home screen controls. Can deliver VPN settings. All kinds of stuff. Uh, lots and lots and lots of things. Um, and you, there actually is a configuration profile editor built into Apple Configurator. So if you go to Configurator, go into the File menu, and choose New Profile. That will give you all the information about what you can do to control that iOS device. And you can make more than one of these configuration profiles as well. You can put on two, three, four, five, ten. 10. I mean, the way we do it in our school is we actually put on something like between 17 and 25 different configuration profiles. And the reason we do that is because we have one profile per restriction that we put on the device. So we have one profile for turning off iMessage, one for turning off FaceTime, one for turning off whatever else we turn off. Uh, renaming the device is another one we don't allow. And what that gets you is it allows you to disable certain things or, or set certain settings, uh, but then 
take them on and put them off depending on the needs of the individual user rather than having one huge profile that contains everything and then having to edit it for different devices. So that's uh, that's a, a way that you can deal with that. And if you, if you have those kind of deep requirements, then supervision is something you might want to think about. It's quite a complicated step and I would strongly advise that you play with it without... <laughs> what I mean is, I would strongly suggest that you play with it on a device that is not your primary device, right? If you get a new iPad, why not play with supervision for the first week and then set it up? But don't try it with your personal phone because it will wipe you out and then you'll have to set it up from scratch. This episode is also brought to you by Eero, the company that helps you never to think about Wi-Fi again. With Eero, you never need to worry that your Wi-Fi isn't fast enough to stream movies or download files because Eero have created the Wi-Fi setup of dreams, a fast, reliable connection throughout your entire house. The second generation Eero also includes a third 5GHz radio, making it twice as fast as before. Whatever your Wi-Fi needs, Eero will blanket your home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi. It sits flat on any surface, just plug it into the wall with the included power adapter and you're ready to connect your Eero either with Ethernet or wirelessly. And the included thread radio means you can connect to low-power devices like locks, doorbells and more. They also have the tiny Eero beacon. All you need to do is plug it into a wall and expand coverage to any room so you don't have to move to a different part of the house to get the internet speed you want. And it even includes a built-in LED nightlight with an ambient light sensor. The Eero app lets you control the network from your phone and it's no hassle to create and share a guest network too. Plus their customer support is phenomenal. You can call and get hold of a Wi-Fi expert in just 30 seconds. You can get your own Eero system, including one second generation Eero and two beacons for just $399. This is everything you need to get started. And you don't have to wait weeks to get hold of your new dream Wi-Fi. Listeners of this show can get free overnight shipping to the US or Canada when you head to Eero.com and use the promo code CANVAS. That's E-E-R-O.com with the promo code CANVAS for free overnight shipping. We thank Eero for their support of this show. Okay, finally, I want to talk about one last way that a parent can control the operation of an iOS device. And these these are controls at the network level. What I mean by this is that instead of controlling individual apps or individual features on the device, what you're doing is you're controlling that device's access to the network. And as you kind of know from much of what you do on iOS devices, that they're not super useful without access to the internet. So there's a couple of ways that people tend to handle this. And the first of all, these is timed access to the network. The second, which we'll talk about in a second, is parental VPN controls. Timed access, though, is is probably the simplest one to do and uh, quite comprehensive too. Many Wi-Fi devices, including Apple's airport and various other platforms, will support timed access. It is even possible that your ISP's Wi-Fi, if that's what you use, provides this feature in some kind of form. What this means is that you use what's called a MAC address, or in the iOS about screen, it's called a Wi-Fi address. This is a, a unique identifier that is built into individual devices. You can use that to identify separate devices, and some systems will let you say, okay, this device, this MAC address, can connect to the internet between these times, but not at other times. And you can do that on an individual basis for different MAC addresses on your network. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it, depending on what your system supports, is you can create a second Wi-Fi network with a different name. So you could call it home and then home children. 
And what you do then is you say, okay, the home children network only exists between, say, you know, 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. in the evening and not at any other time. Many Wi-Fi systems will let you do that. And obviously what that means is if you if your children don't know the password for the home network, but they know it for the kids' network, then they can access the kids' network whenever it is broadcast by your Wi-Fi. And then that network goes away and the, the kids don't have access to the other network. So timed access, either on a per device basis or on, a, uh, on the basis of only providing certain networks at certain times, are two ways that you can handle uh, timed access for, for users. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is there's an app called Kirby. This is called C, this is spelled C-U-R-B-I. And this is a, a way to handle network access, which is a bit more comprehensive because it runs on the device and therefore it works outside of your own network. What it is, is it's basically a parent, uh, what it is, is it's basically a parent-controlled VPN system. All the child device's traffic goes through Kirby's VPN and it reports that information back to the parent. So that allows you to see things like the web and app traffic that are coming from the user's device. It can also be used to block content because all the traffic goes through Kirby's servers. Therefore, they can do traffic analysis there and they can say, okay, some of these pages are not being allowed or some of this content is not being allowed and so on. But they can also just use that to report statistics to the parents, even if it's not uh, going to block anything in particular. And finally, what you can do with Kirby is you can use Kirby uh, and basically the parents set settings on Kirby servers that control what happens with that user's uh, connection to the internet. So the parent can actually hit a button on the parent app that says, okay, stop it now. And Kirby will basically cut off network access for that device. Or you can allow times for that. So you can say, okay, this device, this this uh, this app on my network or this device on my network only gets access to the internet during these certain times. Now, Kirby is different from doing it on your own Wi-Fi because what happens is, say if, you're, if your child is over at a friend's house for a sleepover, um, obviously with the first technique, that only applies to the Wi-Fi network you control. But if the, you're using Kirby VPN and they go and connect to a friend's Wi-Fi network, your rules will still apply no matter whether or not they're on your network or on somebody else's network as well. So Kirby, C-U-R-B-I, is another option that you can use to control uh, a young person's access to the internet from an, an app that's on your phone as well. So that is a basic rundown. I say a basic rundown, that's 40 minutes of time there. But that's a rundown of all the things that are already built into iOS for parental controls, feature restrictions, commerce restrictions, privacy restrictions, uh, and other things like volume limit and so on. We can also use gated access for really tight control if you have a situation where you really don't want people anywhere else. And I might add one other thing about gated access is that you can set it so that it works, it, it enables from a triple click of the home button. So for example, if you wanted to let somebody have a look at photos, for example, on your device, but you didn't want them to go into any other app, you could just open up a certain app that you want them to see triple click the home button or uh, the side button on an iPhone 10 and then hand it over and that device is in gated access mode for them and they can't get back out of it until you 
come back and put in the PIN code. So that's another way to use gated access if, if you're not dealing with young people or uh, people with learning difficulties, for example. We talked a little bit about supervision. Supervision is something you want to be careful with and play with on a device that is not your main device, but it can be very powerful if you're setting things up for an enterprise or a, a public kiosk scenario and so on. And finally, of course, parental network controls are a whole other way of dealing with it where you're not setting up individual settings on the device, you're dealing with the device's access to the internet. Timed access is good on networks you control, but also parental VPN settings, apps like Kirby, for example, are quite good if you if your young person goes off to other networks quite often and you want those controls to be on the device rather than on the network. This has been Canvas episode 61, Parental Controls on iOS. Federico will be back next show and we look forward to talking to you then. <laughs>